0: Name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, one God. Amen. My beloved, today is the third Sunday of the blessed month of Misra, the last month in the Coptic year. Uh, of course, besides the small, uh, the little month, um, and the the Church chose for us this passage from the Gospel of Mark, uh, chapter three. And this actually, um, this incident was accounted in all three of the Synoptic Gospels—Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Um. But there's something quite alarming when we read in this Gospel that perhaps many of us have thought about and questioned. Um, and uh, Not including you know, all of us, of course, myself included, but also even many of the church fathers, when they read part of this passage, it troubled them. And the part reads, Assuredly, I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the sons of men. But he who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness. This idea of an unforgivable sin is quite alarming and terrifying for many, myself being the first. And even St. Augustine, he says, perhaps there is not in all Scripture found a more important or more difficult question about what is this unforgivable sin? Why is it important? Because we all will think, am I committing this unforgivable sin? that will lead to condemnation, my eternal condemnation, or not. Um, and uh, I'd like to you know, discuss briefly this morning about this uh, unforgivable sin. This passage comes right after the Lord had healed a man who was mute and blind. He cast out a demon, and this demon caused him to be mute and blind. And perhaps the demon of being mute and blind um, may not be as uh, apparent to us nowadays as in maybe first century Judaism uh, and even through the first few centuries of Christianity. Because St. Cyril of Alexandria, what does he say about this demon who causes someone to be mute? He says, Mute devils are difficult for any one of the saints to rebuke. They are more abstinent than any other kind and excessively bold. And if we notice when the Lord's, uh, so this was their understanding, the Jewish understanding, and of course the early fathers, that these mute, these demons that cause someone to be mute, they're extremely difficult and stubborn demons, and usually they require much rituals and prayer for this one to be cast. So they have before them a man who is blind, uh, who is mute, and the Lord. Spoke and the demon left. Just like that. No rituals, no anything. So of course this was something that was appalling to them. And the people around who witnessed this miracle, they immediately said, could this be the son of David? Meaning could this be the Messiah? By whose word the devil trembles and is cast out? Then what happens is... um Uh, The Pharisees then came and accused him of casting out this demon by the power of Beelzebub. Now Beelzebub has two uh, meanings that are the most common. One is the Lord of Heavens and the other is Lord of the Flies. And the Lord of uh, Heavens, St. Paul, in his letter to the Ephesians, he speaks about Satan as being the one who has the power of the air. Um, So the one who rules in the power of the air. Uh, So this perhaps is where they get this name Beelzebub was the ruler of the Satan who was the ruler of uh, of the air at the time. Then the Lord uh, responds, but we can tell from the Lord's response that whatever the meaning of this Beelzebub is, he took it to be equating Satan, right? So if they accuse me for casting out the demon by Beelzebub, this means you're accusing me of casting out the demon by the power of Satan. Um, and according to the understanding of the Jews at the time, there are either two options of this act. Number one is that either Christ was more powerful than the demon, thus he was from God, or he was a more powerful demon than the one that, this man that possessed this man. And of course, like we said, the one, the demon that possesses this, um, a mute, or possesses someone and makes them become mute, is very stubborn. So he must be a more powerful demon than even this one. So this would be Satan himself, right? Then the Lord immediately exercises this demon and He says that He does so by the Spirit of God. Listen to what the Lord said. He says, every kingdom divided against itself is brought... This is from Matthew's account. I Remember I told you it was from Matthew, Mark, and Luke. We read today in the Gospel it was Mark's account. This was from Matthew. He says, every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation. Every city or house divided against itself will not stand. If Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? I want you to highlight this word kingdom for a minute because we'll come back to it in a minute. How will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? Their sons meaning the prophets and those who cast out uh, demons before, the Jewish exorcists. Therefore, they shall be your judges. But if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, surely the kingdom of God has come upon you. So the Lord is saying that um, He does so by the Spirit of God. If you want to summarize this argument that the Lord made as a rebuttal to their accusation, basically the descent of any system or the division of any system, kingdom or house, Will ultimately leads to its desolation, meaning will they'll fracture and they'll break and crumble. If you want something to be crumbled, you put a division uh, in it. So the logic that the Lord is using kind of runs something like the following: He says to them, "If I were with Satan, then his kingdom would be divided and thus it would have fallen." Quite obviously, the kingdom that he, quite obviously it is not fallen yet, as some are still being possessed. So he says, if Satan casts out Satan, his kingdom is fallen. But it's not fallen because there's a man who is demon-possessed, right? Um, And therefore, I have not cast out Satan by Satan. Um, So if the power or the kingdom of Satan is very strong, then how is it that the Lord has authority over the demons? If we go to Luke's account, listen to what he adds here. He says, when a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are in peace. But when a stronger than he comes upon him and overcomes him, he takes from him all his armor in which he trusted and divides the spoil. So he's saying here that this strong man who has governed his house is is secure unless a stronger than he comes. And then he says, so he's referring to himself as being stronger than this strong man who is guarding his house. So the Lord Christ comes into the world, stronger than Satan, and begins to take his spoil. The, Satan's spoil are our, our, the souls of man, right? They're under his possession and under his control, right? So he takes these from him, uh, from the enemy. I told you to underline this part of the kingdom before. Because the real significance in this passage is not necessarily the exorcism itself, but what's happening here with the kingdom. He says what? If I cast, uh, this is from Luke's account, but if I cast out demons with the finger of God, surely the kingdom of God has come upon you. This phrase finger of God occurs nowhere else in the New Testament. And actually, it occurs only one other place in all of scripture. And that's in Exodus. If you remember, um, after, during the plagues, the ten plagues, the first two plagues, the uh, turning the water into blood and the frogs, the magicians of, of Pharaoh did the same, right? So what are they saying? The same powers and miracles that you claim God has, so do my magicians who work by the demons, right But then when it came to the third plague of the lice, listen what happened. It said, for Aaron stretched out his hand with his rod and struck the dust of the earth, and it became lice on men and beast. All the dust of the land became lice throughout all the land of Egypt. Now the magicians so worked with their enchantments to bring forth lice, but they could not. So there were lice on man and beast. Then the magicians said to Pharaoh. This is the finger of God. So the people who were against Moses and against God, when they saw this and they weren't able to replicate this miracle, they said, this must be by the finger of God. So they clearly saw and they were able to clearly recognize that this power is greater than the power that we are working with. Right? And this is perhaps why the Lord, when He said, when He cast out this demon, He said precisely this. That this is the finger of God at work. To bring to the Pharisees understanding that this is greater than the demon. Just like what happened with, uh, the time of Moses. And this was the confession made by not, you know, Aaron or Miriam or any of those who were, uh, of the people of Israel or the people of, you know, Israel, but of His enemies, the magician. So, if we want to summarize the arguments, it will be as follows. You accuse me of casting out demons by Satan. If so, then Satan has a divided kingdom and should have fallen. We both know that it is not fallen, for the souls are still being possessed by Satan. Since it is not fallen, quite obviously it is not divided. If it's not divided then I can't be in league with Satan. And if I'm not in league with Satan, I must be in alliance with God. And if I work with the power of God, then the finger of God displaces the kingdom of Satan. And if the kingdom of Satan is displaced, then the kingdom of God has surely come upon you. This was the sequence of events. For them to understand that because he cast out Satan and his kingdom is dispersed, the place where the kingdom of Satan is dispersed becomes the kingdom of God. Right? The kingdom of heaven is a place absent of any type of sin or the, from the enemy. So what about this blasphemy against the Holy Spirit? We'll answer four questions really quickly. Why did the Lord speak about blasphemy against the Holy Spirit at this time? And why was the one sin or what was the one sin declared to be unforgivable why is sin against the son of man forgivable while the sin against the Holy Spirit is not forgivable. The first question is why did the Lord speak about blasphemy against the Holy Spirit as I said after he cast out this demon that caused the man to be blind and mute he was accused of doing so by the power of Satan so the Lord wants to affirm that this was done by the Spirit of God or by the power of God. They were accusing or equating with Him to be Satan. So they're equating the Lord to be Satan and Himself. So this was a complete denial of what was obvious and true actions of God. So He spoke in this time, rebuking them, not because they ridiculed Him or just mocked Him. Many times they mocked Him and He didn't say anything. When they went to equate him with Satan, he spoke in this manner and revealed their, um, their fallacy. So what was the one sin that was declared unforgivable? Actually, St. Augustine spoke about this in length uh, and it troubled him much. And he spoke uh, a lot about it. He says, um, and I'll kind of try to summarize what he said. He begins by postulating perhaps the Lord meant here this committing this uh, blasphemy against the Holy Spirit means committing some deadly sin after one has received the Holy Spirit, after baptism. However, he came and he realized and he looked and he said but when the Lord was speaking about this he wasn't speaking about the baptized Christians because he didn't say the baptized Christians who shall speak a word against the Holy Spirit. But he said, He who speaks a word against the Holy Spirit. So he who means everyone, all humanity, whether believer or non believer, alike. So thus this unforgivable sin can be committed by both believers and unbelievers alike. And then he says, though, if we notice a little bit in the language, he says, Whoever he doesn't he doesn't say whoever speaks any word, but he said, Whoever speaks a word so there is this particular sin against the Holy Spirit that he's referring to is what is unforgivable. Then he says what? To speak against the Holy Spirit then is to speak against the gift of forgiveness. To speak against this sin against the God that is, or against the Holy Spirit that is unforgivable is when we speak against the gift of forgiveness because it's by the Holy Spirit that we receive forgiveness and are moved towards forgiveness. And he says, against this uh, gratuitous gift, against the grace of God, does the impenitent heart speak. This impenitence is blasphemy against the spirit. So it's the spirit that's stubborn, that does not want to repent or refuses repentance. This is the unforgivable sin. So we say, when I have my son or my daughter or my husband or my wife, they don't want to come to confession and they don't want to repent. So is this unforgivable? No. Because there's always hope. God continues to work with us you know, to try to drive us to repentance through the circumstances of our life. And as long as we're breathing and we have this opportunity, the Spirit will work and everyone's prayers will work to help this person to repent and if we want to give the example of the right hand thief as we always do I put till his last breath he repented and asked God for forgiveness and he was granted forgiveness but what's saying here is like the one who insists on not repenting despite the obvious work of God you want to know like who? like Pharaoh Pharaoh witnessed these 10 plagues and all were incredible miracles done in front of him clearly by a man of God but he insisted not to repent. He insisted, and this insistence on rep- not repenting where did this drive him? It drove him in the middle of the Red Sea, and then he died there because he insisted on not repenting. right? So he took his um, his pride and his insistence on r- not repenting to his grave. This is the unforgivable sin. So why is it unforgivable? If you think about it this way, I'll give you, you know, a little scenario. If there is a child, you know, and he has a toy that's on the top shelf, right? And he says to his father, father, can you reach up there and give me that toy? And he says, sure, son, I'll get it for you. And as he goes to reach up there, he says, dad, don't even bother because you're too short to reach up there. I don't think you can reach it. Don't bother. And I don't want you to reach up there because I know you can't do it. So the father says, suit yourself. I'm not going to reach up there. I won't get it for you. Is there any way for this child to receive that gift besides his father reaching up there? There's no way, right? There's no way he can reach that unless somebody gets it for him. So the child's denial of his father's capability hinders him from receiving that gift, right? Or that toy. He can't, it won't happen. So when we refuse the gift of the Holy Spirit, of forgiveness and our, that moves us to repentance, then it's refusing the very gift that is there to save us and help us. This becomes unforgivable. And it's not because it's a pronunciation by God and he says if you do this, you're dead. It's because we're denying God's work in us altogether. And if it's not God working in us to repentance, who will drive us to repentance? Certainly not Satan. Certainly not Satan. So why is sin against the Son of God, Son of Man forgivable while the sin against the Holy Spirit is not? This is what St. John Chrysostom says. He says, They might have been ignorant of Jesus and who he might be, but of the Holy Spirit they could not be ignorant due to their own previous experience. For the prophets have spoken by the Spirit. The Old Testament as a whole had an exalted understanding of the Holy Spirit. So he said, if we blaspheme against the Lord Jesus, it may be out of ignorance, because we don't understand His Godhead and His union with the Father and so on. But to them, to blaspheme the Holy Spirit, which is very active in the Old Testament, and they're very aware of, and it was very clear in front of them, if they do this, then they they, they commit this sin, because they're very well aware of it. This is why when they say to them, if you blaspheme the Son of Man, it's forgivable. Because of their ignorance. They ultimately crucified Him. And what did Christ say on the cross? Forgive them. Father, for they know not what they do. Right? He granted them forgiveness because of their ignorance. But they didn't blaspheme, or they weren't speaking about the Holy Spirit here. So sinning against the Holy Spirit is to explicitly blaspheme against the divinity of God, the one who is able to liberate. At the end of today's passage, the people are told or the people came to the Lord uh, and said, your mother and brothers are looking for you. And the Lord responded and said, who, are, who is my mother or my brothers? And then he said, for whoever does the will of God is my brother and my sister and my mother. So if we do the will of God and we we become like his sibling, like his brother and his mother and his and his sister, so we have no need to fear. If I love God and I live this repentant life, then I have no need to fear whether I commit this blasphemous sin. Even if I have thoughts against God Himself, but I return to my senses and I say no, this isn't from me. This thought is not from me. And I make the sign of the cross and I ask God for forgiveness and ask Him to strengthen my faith and to help my unbelief and help my weakness. These moments are not blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. right? But They are the struggle that we all have in this world. So if we struggle to do the will of God, um, uh, we will be not those who have no forgiveness, but rather like his mother, brother, and sister. To God be the glory forever and ever. Amen.